Welcome to The Wine Beat. This is Craig. The episode you're listening to is about the Rhone wine region. It's a companion podcast to the interview that I recorded with Frédéric Chaudier of Chateau Pesquier. If you haven't had the chance to hear that interview, then I'd encourage you to go to listen to that episode and hear Fred talk about his wines and his wine region, the Ventoux, within the Rhone Valley. However, the intention for this particular episode you're listening to now, as a way to build upon the interview with Fred, is to have a general discussion about the Rhone, its subregions, its grape varieties, and some of the significant factors that make this a good place to find outstanding wines. It's meant to paint a bit of a picture of this famed region and allow us to start to break it all down and make some sense of all that is happening here. It's a beautiful journey to take, and I hope I can do it some justice. The Rhone Valley is one of the world's outstanding wine regions, but as is the case with a lot of great wine regions, there's loads more than just wine to make this place amazing. In fact, it has so many awesome aspects to it. It's physical beauty, it's special place in France, it's famed food and wine, it's charming roads and streets, and all wrapped in this really gorgeous haunting package. This valley is a large and varied canvas on which God has written some of his most beautiful work in the crafting of terrain with a wonderful composition of serene rivers and flowing valleys and hills, all backed up and juxtaposed by striking mountain ramparts like the aptly named Dentelle de Montmirail, the teeth of Montmirail. Humans over the centuries have added their own rustic and poetic brushstrokes to the scene in a way that complements and enhances the whole, which is something pretty nice, don't you think, that the human element actually you know, enhances the picture. The picturesque towns in the valleys, the medieval fortified villages of hewn stone that grow out of strategic rock promontories in the mountains, the rolling banded patterns of vineyards and the splashes of geometric color from the agricultural crops are pretty and poetic embellishments to the countryside. This is a place that should be sampled slowly and close up. A bicycle trip would be ideal if you have plenty of time. A car helps you get around and see more and sample more wines and more food. There are villages to walk through, mountain roads to explore, Roman ruins to marvel over, and of course, super fabulous wines. You'll find that the large centers of Orange and Carpentras are not particularly beautiful in the outskirts, but each has an ancient town center with winding streets and hushed alleys for walking, sidewalk, restaurants and cafes with wonderful food, cathedrals, Roman amphitheaters, and lots more. The city of Avignon is much more of a destination. It's only about two and a half hours from Paris by high-speed train, and is one of the most beautiful cities in southern France with tremendous history and much to see. It is best known as, uh, as the home of the Palais des Papes, which was the home of the Catholic popes in the 1300s. Its imposing, fantastical, buttressed facade is worthy of a scene in The Lord of the Rings. But perhaps it's the small villages like Segurey, Venasque, Baume de Venise, Gourde, and Vaison-la-Romaine, uh, to name only a few of the many, are the real ac ac architectural jewels of the Rhone Valley. There are literally dozens of these classic, small, countryside villages, and they all have these fantastic medieval centers that act as the focal point for social life, the kind of languid, enjoy-every-minute style of living, which often plays out in long evenings, socializing and eating and drinking in the squares or on the sidewalks or along the side streets. The whole environment encourages more time to be spent with friends and family over food and drink. 
the tourists may come and go with speed as they move along and you know to their next planned stop but the locals will talk and drink and smoke and lean on their elbow at great length while the dog waits quietly under the table the quality of the cooking is amazing and there are plentiful top quality wines at great prices we're going to come back to that later now let's float up from the village street level to about 30,000 feet and look at where we are. Taken in overview and looking at the map of southeastern France, you will see how the Great Saône River flows from the north through Burgundy towards the city of Lyon. Meanwhile, the Rhone River, with its headwaters at the Rhone Glacier in Switzerland, flows westwards from the nearby Alps, uh, the Rhone incidentally forms the main source for Lake Geneva on its way, to give you an idea of where we're at. But the two rivers ultimately have their confluence in the heart of the city of Lyon. Lyon is a gorgeous, romantic, and historic city, and it's built around, and its char character is deeply integrated with the rivers. The city sits astride both of those rivers, and in a bold piece of municipal high-grading, there's a new Musée des Confluences perched at the point where the rivers join. This museum looks over the newly combined Great Rhone River. The Musée is a wildly beautiful architectural adventure recently completed in 2014 and reminiscent of a shinier and more sculpted version of a Klingon warship just lifting off to go south towards Provence. Lyon is France's third largest city after Paris and Marseille, and it's a treasure. It has depth and soul and history and endless entertainment, but it's, it's, it's attractive because it's neither as over-visited and glitzy as Paris, nor as grimy, cool as Marseille. It's one of the top few cities that should be visited in France. It's a comfortable five-hour drive from Paris on the auto route, you could take a lot longer if you were visiting Burgundy and Beaujolais along the way. It also, and you know, it makes a great stopping point on the way to the Rhone if if you are driving. It's also only about two hours on the high-speed TGV train from Paris. Geographically, Lyon has the Beaujolais wine region just immediately to the north, but what happens as you move south from Lyon along the Rhone River Valley is that the Rhone. And, and therefore the highway that tracks the Rhone's path gets compressed and must wend its way in tight turns through the gauntlet of cliffs where the mountains of the Massif Central, the central set of mountains in France, and the foothills of the Alps pinch together. You can sense how Herculean geological forces of clashing tectonic plates pushed the mountains together and how the Rhone River, with some help from the ancient glacier of the same name, has slowly, over time, managed to split the mountains back apart again. So what you have is quite open country in a massive sort of V-shape to the north of Lyon, and then a constriction through this kind of a gorge before another really wide V-shape spreads out to the south. Now, Gorge is maybe a bit too impressive a name for the Rhone Valley in the north here, but, but it does help to paint a picture of the terrain and the precipitous slopes on which some of the most famous grapes in the world are grown. So now we're getting into wine country. The Rhone has sculpted these very steep slopes, and then wine growers over the centuries have carved into them 
remarkable narrow terraces where some of the most iconic wine regions are located. Côte Roti, Hermitage, Condrieu, and Saint-Joseph, among others. These abrupt mountains also helped protect those vineyards from the harsh northern winds, including the famed Mistral, which everybody talks about in the Rhone Valley and Provence as being so fundamental to the character of the, of the region. And those, those mountains also form amphitheaters that catch the southern and southeastern exposure to the sun. This first narrow part of the valley can be called the Northern Rhone. This is the part of the valley that harbors the biggest names and the most expensive wines in the Rhone. The vineyards here have serious pedigree and very often have passed down from family through, you know, from family member to family member through multiple generations. Wine writers chronicle the history and the minute geog geography of this area to truly impressive detail. And with good reason, you only have to consider the horse-drawn plowing or even hoeing by human hand that goes on and the manicure level of attention to vine husbandry to appreciate the place. And the new generation of winemakers' remarkable respect for the lineage of the vines and the winemaking tradition is pretty fascinating, combining faith faithfulness to historical vineyard practices, including returning to organic practices in many, many cases, while at the same time applying centuries of winemaking experience in the context of cutting-edge wine facilities. In these northern Rhone appellations, the red wines are made almost exclusively of Syrah. In fact, Syrah is the only red grape used in the northern Rhone. This is the home of Syrah, and to many, the singularly most genuine expression of the Syrah grape in the whole world can be found here. These are big, heady, and spicy wines with lots of fruit and very elegant tannins for aging. You may or may not already know this, but it's interesting to note that some of the great Syrah wines of the Northern Rhone are made with a small proportion of white grapes, and this can have a very pronounced symbiotic impact on the red wine. Maybe that red-white combination is something for another episode. The white wines of the North are made largely from Viognier, in the famed wines of Condrieu, for example, or Marsan and Roussan in Croz Hermitage, for example. The whites of the Northern Rhone are rich, fragrant, and layered. Generally speaking, however, whether in red wine or white wine, the Northern Rhone is an area for wine drinkers that have deep pockets. To recap, the Northern Rhone is an area that is dramatic both in scenery and in the celebrated names of its regions and in the power of its wines. It's worth knowing for sure, but for the wine beat and for our mission to seek out the best wines that are not yet priced in the stratosphere, there are more attractive hunting grounds. Someday we'll come back to look for hidden gems in places like Croze Hermitage, Saint Joseph, etc. But I think we have to save it for a future episode. I think, you know, for now we should get back on the road and head south. The valley is now breaking free of the confines of the, that northern closure. And, and as we go south, it balloons out to a very wide valley as it extends and expands toward Marseille and the Mediterranean Sea. The valley represents the remains of an extremely ancient bay in the Mediterranean and the river delta that fed into it. Volcanic forces several hundred million years ago produced the granite rock of the northern Rhone, which we were just talking about, and this granite bedrock is very important for the wine characteristics of that region. But more recent geological activity laid down the foundations for the southern Rhone's soils and bedrock. 
What really influenced the southern Rhone is that the Alps Mountains in the east and that French Central Massif Mountain, a little bit you know, to the, to the west, spread apart, tearing a rift valley. And as this tremendous rift grew and stretched open, the waters of the Mediterranean washed in and settled into that gap. For millions of years, this ancient bay in the Mediterranean Sea remained there and allowed layer after layer of limestone, which is basically the skeletal remains of tiny sea creatures and coral, to be laid down. This strata was mixed with the sediment which flowed out from the, from the predecessor to the Rhone River as it emptied into the sea and deposited all the minerals and additional sediments that it carried from the north. This combination of limestone, sand, and clay sediments created the perfect strata upon which to one day grow vines. Then, over long ages, this rich sedimentary sea bottom was lifted upwards above sea level until it reached the point it has today, kilometers from the Mediterranean coastline as we know it now. Geography and geology may not have been in your mind as you tuned, in, tuned into this podcast, but think of it as one of the main underlying themes for the story of the wines of this region. It's a crucial backstory for the really interesting part of the plot, the wine itself. So why is this geography backstory so important to the bigger picture? It's because the bedrock composition is critical to the water sources and the mineral nutrients for the grapevines, as well as the creation of the subsoils and soils that are derived from that overall geological mix. And by extension, the fruit flavors and the aromas and acidity, etc., that define the wines that are derived from these rocks. It's an absolutely critical part of the, why the Rhone wines are so good. An extremely simple example and one way to think about it is that limestone rock and clay soils are more porous and hold water better than granite and decomposed hard rock like flint or schist. So the relative availability of water is going to affect the composition of the grape and potentially the concentration of sugar, acid, and flavors, etc. The northern Rhone granites have a big impact on the characteristics of those Syrah wines. Another simple ex example is the exposure to the sun that the mountainsides provide, such as in the case of the northern Rhone, where the steep south-facing hillsides mean intense exposure to the sun. No wonder the coat roti is named as it is. It, it means roasted slope. It's also useful to know the geography, because when you visit the Rhone, you can appreciate the signs of all this geological history, from the winding roads through the famous vineyards of the northern Rhone, as you head south from Lyon, to the jagged Dentelle de Montmirail, a famed rock climbing destination and backdrop to some of the most famous Rhone subregions in the south, to the hulk of Mont Ventoux and the amphitheater below it, which creates very unique and special microclimates such as you find in the Ventoux region. So, we're on the road going south. The valley is widening into the ancient river delta slash bay. Beyond the town of Valence, the southern Rhone Valley opens up into pretty large expanses of farmland, including a patchwork of wine-growing appellations that populate this area. The climate here becomes much more warm and is much more influenced by the Mediterranean than the northern Rhone is. But it's also more exposed to the punishingly harsh Mistral wind. This wind is fundamentally important to the southern Rhone. Its 90 km an hour force can damage vines at critical stages in the season but it also blows away fungus and insect pests and thereby massively improves grape quality. It's a touch of magic for Rhone wine growing. And there's another famous magical and mystical touch in Rhone wines, that of Garrigue. Garrigue is a ubiquitous 
scrubby plant native to southern France and a favorite touchpoint for lovers of the region's wines. It grows everywhere and is widely considered part of the terroir of the place. Look for that wild herb and slightly pungent spicy note in the Rhone Reds, and then you know you found the Garrigue. Anyway, as we focus on the Southern Rhone, we have a pivotal problem to tackling the wines of this area. The challenge of understanding the large range of subregions and microclimates that provide the tremendous number of wines produced here. To understand the Rhone, we're going to have to face head-on the Appellation de Origine Controlée system. You're probably familiar with the concept of appellations, but let's do a quick review. It's a term that was first used in France. It basically refers to a geographic area. In its most simple terms, it provides protection to the wine growers within that region so that wines from other, possibly inferior wine regions can't use or misappropriate the same name. Probably the most famous example of this is Champagne. The use of the word Champagne, of course, is carefully controlled and is only to be used for the sparkling wine that comes from the Champagne region of France. But there's more to the appellation system than just the geographical boundary of where it's located. In many places, there are legal controls over the wine production in the area that go much further than just the name. Most famously, the type of wine grapes that can be used in order to uh, use the appellation name are often controlled. The quantities of wine that can be produced might be controlled. Even the vine training techniques in the vineyard and the winemaking techniques in the cellar may be controlled. To th make things even more confusing, the use of subregion names like villages or districts within the Appalachian are often also controlled. This can be absolutely exhausting stuff and can complicate the label on the wines as you try to read it. But hang in there, it goes with the territory and it's almost always part of the wine experience. Call it part of the nerdy fun. You're gonna find this phenomenon of Appalachians in basically every wine growing country in the world. Appalachian control and wine marketing are a tremendous battleground for the building up of market niches and for wine regions to both cooperate and to compete. However, the Appalachian system provides a lot of value to wine consumers and wine producers. In many, most case, if not most cases, they exist for very valid historic reasons related to the terroir of the area, the variety of grape which has been found to best thrive in that area, the winemaking traditions that have been proven over centuries. Etc. So the supporters of Appalachian control systems will make a very good argument that an Appalachian designation is a seal of quality. And trust the French to take this regional branding to its bureaucratic zenith. What follows may seem like snobbery, codified, and you would be right. That's what the French do. They codify things. You may ask, is the system useful for finding great wines at fair prices? Yes and no. No, the Appalachian system is not completely useful because you cannot take a hierarchy of wine villages dictated by some bureaucracy as the gospel for whether the wines are in fact good enough to merit the accolades they receive or the price they command. However, yes, the Appalachian system is useful because it is a roadmap within a very complex wine region. Consider that in the Rhone, there are more than 5,000 wine producers producing almost 400 million bottles of wine every year across 28 Appalachian areas. A hierarchy or a distinction between these Appalachians is ultimately one useful tool for getting to the best action. Now, in the case of the Rhone, what the Appalachian system has done is provide a progression 
or continuum through which the small village-based wine regions can progress through and thereby move up the supposed quality hierarchy. In other words, over time, if your small region can distinguish itself on quality and unique character attributes, then your region can be elevated up the ranks. So here's the steps in the ladder in simplified terms, of course. First, there's a very general wine appellation of Cote du Rhone. Essentially, this is its own appellation. It covers a very large area, not all connected, but you know, sort of a dispersed patchwork of large, oddly shaped splotches on the map with many, many wines in it. There are very many great values among the wines from the Cote de Rhone appellation. Definitely some of the best value to quality ratios in France. But you'll need to do your research to find some good ones. I've listed a couple that are relatively easy to find in this episode and on the website as well, and wines that I've tried, so that might be a starting point. Now on the second rung of the ladder, if a village or a small region has really set itself apart, it can apply to join the appellation called Côte du Rhône Village. For this appellation, vineyards in certain villages or village areas that are considered to have proven themselves can make wines under this name. Generally speaking, this appellation will be a signal that the quality is good. Third rung up, one more step on the ladder. If the village area is producing exceptional wines, it can move, move along and apply to add the name of that village to the wine label. So, for example, the label will say Côte du Rhône Village, and then it can include the village names such as Plain de Dieu or Ségouré. Fourth step on the ladder. There are certain village areas that are considered crews, or having the highest quality. This is the highest level on the, on the hierarchy. In these cases, you may not even see reference to Côte du Rhône at all on the bottle, but instead just have the name of the village. Sometimes the label will say Cru de Côte du Rhône, to help give you a hint, but it's possible to find some really, really gorgeous wines, and often within the $20 range we're looking for. Search out wines from Restaux and Vaquiras and Lirac and Cairan and Tavelle as examples. You can check out the wines from these areas that I've tried and recommended on the winebeatpod.com websites. That's W-I-N-E-B-E-A-T-P-O-D.com. There's some show notes for this episode, and I've listed some wines there. Chateauneuf du Pape is another example of one of these crews, but it's obviously a little bit at the expensive range. In fact, it's at the most expensive range generally in the, in the Côte de Rhone. Finally, and here we have massive hunting grounds for great wines at great prices, there are Rhone Valley appellations that don't use Côte de Rhone at all. They're completely outside of the hierarchy we just talked about. This has nothing to do with the quality of the wines. It's just a historical uh, happenstance. These include the often fabulous areas of Ventoux, Costière de Nîmes, and Luberon, etc. So these are appellations within the Rhone Valley, but they use the name of their own area without using the term Côte du Rhône. The other thing that the appellation system has done that really defines Rhone wines in a big way is that it dictates the grape varieties that can be used. You could say that the terroir of the various village appellations combined with these iconic grape varieties forges the grace and the power and substance and soul of Rhone wines. In the southern Rhone, the famous trinity of Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedre are the primary grapes used for red wine. 
and in current trendy terms, wine-growing regions all over the world that create Rhone-style reds have adopted the short-form GSM to distinguish this very sexy combination of grapes. For the whites, Grenache Blanc, which is a full-bodied white grape, uh, Marsan, which produces robustly flavored and aromatic wine, and Viognier, a very floral, spicy, and sexy grape variety, are the main components. These grapes often produce elegant and age-worthy wines, in the hands of a good winemaker can have a good degree of energy and verve and acidity and they can be very very food friendly coming back to the specific appellations to look out for here in very brief terms and really as a kind of a primer here are some of the key appellations these provide some amazing wines in the 20 dollars strike point there's more information on the wines and the regions at winebeatpod.com as i mentioned try also looking at the wealth of information set out in Pretty entertaining form on the website published by the Rhone Wine Industry at rhone-wines.com. So that's R-H-O-N-E hyphen W-I-N-E-S dot com. But here goes with a select set of the appellations that are highly useful to know. Start with Resto. And these are in no particular order, but we'll start with Resto. The Resto village area is set on a hill and backstopped by the Dentel, the Montmerai that we've been talking about has had its own AOC, its own appellation, since 2010. So it's one of the younger villages to be elevated up to crew status. It's at that top rung. It has its own AOC. Maybe because of this, it is particularly good hunting grounds for those $20 bargain wines. The wines are minimum 50% Grenache, and the, and the heat in Rasto is key to the ripeness and maturity of the grapes. A minimum of 20% Syrah and Mourvedre are included. The Syrah bringing big dark fruit and the Mourvedre bringing good tannic structure. Check out Hortas Resto La Domelière and Famille Perrin Landiol as two excellent, excellent wines in that 20 buck range. Next area we're talking about is Vaqueras. Vaqueras is an appellation that makes quite intense reds, but with a reputation for being more restrained and possibly more elegant than its immediate neighbor, Gigondas. 50% of the grapes are required to be Grenache, which leaves 50% for Syrah, Mourvedre, and sometimes Cinso. These rules have some similarity to Chateauneuf de Pape, and thus the relative heft and weight of the wines. There are some whites, but look out for reds, such as the Famille Perrin, Vaqueras Le Christine, made from Grenache and Syrah. This is a few dollars north of that $20 point, uh, and I think most Vaqueras are priced a little higher in the range among Cote de Rhone wines, but, but not as high as Gigondas, uh, which we're just going to talk about now. Gigondas, we have to mention Gigondas, even if the wines are a bit more expensive, because of the reputation and the quality of this appellation. It is often put up as a worthy competitor to Chateauneuf de Pape, but at more reasonable prices. And no wonder, bold and rich, but elegant, Grenache-dominated wines covering, coming from very privileged terroir under the shadow of Les Dentelles. Even, even if it's not in that, you know, plus-minus $20 strike range we try to, try to hit, there's a case to be made that Gigondas wines are a bargain compared to some of their peers, especially in the great vintages like 2015 and 2016. Chiron. Chiron has only very recently been elevated to crew status, so it's, it's reached the top rung. In my experience, these wines are a bit more expensive, but given that recent promotion of the village, there may be some great bargains out there. If you find any that you 
that you that you like from Kairan that you think are um, a good value, please let us know. Send an email and and I'll share it with the uh, with the community. Uh, Tavel Tavel is synonymous with serious, age worthy, and complex rosés. Look around for these because they come at a good price and are worth trying. These are not your Provence light as air rosés for summer. These are wines that can be drunk outside of the summer patio. They can drink drunk in the summer summer season, but outside of the summer patio season, they're they're wonderful. And they pair well with foods almost across the whole spectrum. Try the Domaine de la Morderie, La Dame Russe, for a classic expression at a terrific price. It's made from Grenache, Syrah, and Cinso, and is generally very, very highly regarded. The Popes of Avignon and Ernest Hemingway were big Tavel drinkers, and you wouldn't want to argue with any of them. Uh, Lirac. Lirac is a lesser-known crew, but attracting a lot of it, uh, investment from wine producers. Lirac is somewhat unique in that it produces red, white, and rosé of wines of great quality. It's worth keeping out uh, an eye out for. Chateau Montredon, which is more, more well-known for its Chateau Neuf de Pape, makes a very nice Lirac. Ventoux. Uh, we've talked about the Ventoux region in the episode dedicated to Chateau Pesquier and, uh, and, and the interview with uh, Frédéric Chaudier. Uh, growing up in a unique microclimate in the bowl beneath massive Mont Ventoux and at a higher altitude than most of the Rhone, the Ventoux Appalachian is a good source of high-quality terroir-driven wines with some of the freshness and balance that comes with a slightly cooler climate. Qualities on the upswing here, as some of the most reputable wine growers have dedicated themselves to producing world-class wines instead of selling into the cooperatives, uh, as, as used to be more the case. But you have to pick your winemakers with care. Chateau Pesquier is very highly regarded, and their entry-level wine, Les Terras, is an amazing example of great winemaking from this region, and it's relatively easy to find, and it's a great purchase at 20 bucks or less. Also keep an eye out for, for the wines of Domaine de la Fondreche, which have a very, very good reputation. Costière de Nîmes. Uh, with Costière de Nîmes in the far southwest of the Rhone Valley, we're transitioning towards the Languedoc region. In fact, this AOC used to be part of Languedoc. The wines are driven generally by Grenache, Mouvedre, and Syrah in similar ratios to the other southern Rhone regions. This area is known for quality and value. Now, okay, I hope you enjoyed that tour of the Rhone. Don't forget this is a companion podcast, the episode about Chateau Pesquier in the Ventoux region. That episode is a remarkable interview with with, with Frederick Chaudier. Uh, he's very gregarious, very articulate, and I think you'll like that interview. Also, don't forget that it would give me great joy if you were able to get to the website and connect the dots on some of what we've already talked about by checking out the maps and pictures and links on the show notes for this episode. Go to www winebeatpod.com. If you're getting into Rhone wines, you can also learn a ton about the region and the wines at the excellent rhonewines.com site. That's www.rhone-wines.com site. I would be super keen to get your feedback and comments, including any wine recommendations that you may have. Send me an email, please, at winebeatpod at gmail. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes of this podcast that I've posted so far, please subscribe. Believe me, I really want you to come back for more episodes. And as you know, podcast without subscribers is like Rhone wines without the Mistral winds. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe. 
Uh, also on the winebeatpod.com website, have a look at the tasting room pages, some of the wines I've recommended from some of the specific appellations we've discussed, and also from the general Cote Garonne appellation. You'll find some excellent stuff there. Drink great wine this week, maybe from the Rhone. Thanks for listening. Here's a postscript to this episode. A bit of hedonistic history related to the popes of Avignon, and then some hedonism of the food kind, the apertif culture of southern France. I was trying to find a way to build some more about the popes of Avignon into the podcast, because it's quite fascinating, this it's a nitty-gritty bit of history here, but it didn't really work into the flow of the narrative. Regardless, I couldn't help myself, and so I figured I'd put this into a sort of postscript as it is now. History is often as good as fiction, after all, and I think there's a kind of entertaining uh, backstory here. So, as we mentioned at the top of this uh, podcast, the papal seat was moved from, is it papal or papal? Papal? The papal seat was moved from Rome to Avignon in the early 1300s. The French king at the time, Philippe IV, had been in battle with the with Pope Boniface over who, whether the king, Philippe, or the Pope, Boniface, could levy certain taxes. In other words, the French monarchy and the Catholic Church were in an open conflict over the most critical of the levers of power, taxes. And neither popes nor kings liked to have their revenue sources threatened. Eventually, King Philippe got the upper hand because Pope Boniface conveniently died. After the death of Pope Boniface, Philippe was able to wield influence and have a Frenchman installed as Pope in Rome, Pope Clément V. This was not a roundly popular selection in Rome, and the rivalries and conflicts within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church at that time made Pope Clément feel exposed and challenged. In fact, it was clear to everybody that power in the papacy was shifting to France, and this resulted in a low-key insurrection among the senior Italian members of the church. Clément didn't want to live in Rome and have to fight these political battles there, and in any event, his appointment was basically a power play by Philippe of France to control the church. So in accordance with the wishes of King Philippe, and also to give himself some breathing room and to gain control, Clément had the papacy moved to Avignon in France. The move to Avignon meant that the grand entourage of cardinals with their wealth and their penchant for ostentatious display also decamped to Avignon. So for a period, the city thrived as money poured in and was spent to build the grand papal palace, the Palais des Papes, as well as hundreds of rich residences for the cardinals and the church officials, and also to build all the monuments necessary to make the city worthy of hosting the Pope, and also to, and also to fortify the city against external threats. There was a brief golden period, but this is the 1300s we're talking about, and neither cities nor institutions were ever very secure in the Middle Ages. Avignon was always besieged by threats. Roving bands of mercenaries, known as great companies, basically small but dreadful and bloody armies of marauding soldiers who had been left untethered for one reason or another during the Hundred Years' War between France and England, these great companies were on the Rome and pillaging as they moved. Avignon was a rich target, and they threatened the city, 
and they managed to extract ransoms. Ransoms, plural, of course, because once you pay a ransom, the next mercenary army is obviously going to get wind of it and line up and make an even greater threat when they get the chance. The weaknesses of the papal seat were being exposed and, and rot began to set in. To make it worse, the Black Plague struck the city twice in the mid-1300s and each time wiped out a good proportion of the population. But despite the conflicts and chaos, Avignon, as the center of the Catholic Church, would have needed a developed and high-quality wine industry to support it. Not just for the Catholic Church practices and rituals that often involved wine, and which were important, of course, but apparently also for some much more hedonistic stuff that was happening during the Avignon papacy. Apparently there was a fair amount of naughtiness and debauchery going on. And for proper naughtiness and debauchery, you need wine. So the popes of Avignon promoted the growing of vineyards, the making of wine, and the improvement of winemaking techniques and in order to have a supply of top quality wine, it had to be top quality wine. And they did quite a good job of promoting the wine industry. It was a big support and it's part of that history of why Rhone wines are so great. Among other things, the popes developed a summer residence at Chateauneuf-du-Pape and built extensive vineyards to supply the needs of that residence. All of this vineyard and winemaking support benefited the Rhone Valley winemaking tradition immensely. It provided for some stability among winemakers during the tempestuous and dark years when winemaking expertise might otherwise have been lost. It's just one of the countless examples of how Christian institutions in Europe during those dark times uh, you know, such as the papal seats, the monasteries and the churches themselves, played a lead role in maintaining the winemaking through the centuries and establishing wine as a central part of ordinary European culture. Ultimately, the Catholic Church owned much of the land that could be put to grapevines, and the monks helped to maintain a winemaking vocation and tradition that could be passed along and be supplemented and improved and ultimately be shared as a benefit with the local farmers and, and their parishioners. Politics, war, hedonism, faith, and dedication to craft all inextricably bound up in the story of the Rhone. And now, for a bit about food. I don't want to leave the podcast without talking a little bit about food. And particularly, the French tradition of l'apertif, that late afternoon happy hour celebration before dinner. I think someday we'll do a podcast dedicated to the many types of happy hour in the world. There are not many things that are arouse a human sense like thinking about an appetizer-style meal and a cool drink in the late afternoon. Obviously, there's at least one thing more arousing and sensual, but we'll stick to food and wine for this podcast. In Italy, the happy hour is simply called apertivo. In Spain, the absolutely indispensable tapas time is called la hora dell'apertivo. In France, it's called l'apertif, or more often, just apéro. In English-speaking countries, we talk about sundowners. In all cases, it's a joyous part of each culture, and I think a podcast tour of the food and drinks around the happy hour world would be pretty awesome. For now, though, here's a thought on a typical Rhone or Provence happy hour. Whether with a glass of wine, or a kir, which is typically creme de cassis and white wine together, or Campari, or even a little glass of the famous anise liqueur, pastis, from the region, the apéro is a time for delicate light snacks and a drink, or three. For a simple version, pick up a jar of olive tapenade and some pâté, a few cherry tomatoes, 
definitely a nice baguette. Maybe some goat cheese, which you can drizzle some honey over. And this would be a perfect classic Aperol spread to share with your friends as the sun goes down and the evening quiet settles in and we all think about what's for dinner. Thanks for listening. This is Craig. See you next time on The Wine Beat.